The reason the court cares about its legitimacy is it's not obvious why we do what the court says we should do. You know, the court rules. It doesn't have an army. It doesn't have any money. It really has no means of enforcing its decisions. And therefore, it needs to maintain this aura that it's making reasoned, independent decisions that are worthy of respect. Welcome to Season 3 of Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm Yanni Drivas. And I'm Emily Snowden. Today, we're discussing the Roberts Court with Adam Liptak, Supreme Court correspondent for The New York Times, and Lee Epstein, professor of political science and law at Washington University in St. Louis. Thank you both for being here. Great to be here. Very nice to be with you. Okay, getting started. So there's a growing view of the Supreme Court, especially after the appointments of Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, that the court is a partisan institution and it's pursuing a conservative political agenda. Uh, Do you agree with that characterization? Uh, I guess I would distinguish partisanship from ideology in the first place. Uh, It's true that the Supreme Court, for the first time, to my mind, in American history since 2010, has taken on the following unfortunate characteristic that every uh, Republican appointee on the court, five of them, uh, are more conservative than every Democratic appointee on the court, four of them. So they split uh, along conservative and liberal lines in ways that closely mirror uh, our divided electorate and our polarized Congress and so on. But I think partisanship is a dangerous word. Uh, It suggests that you're trying to advance the agenda of a political party as opposed to uh, a set of commitments uh, that judicial ideology drives you toward. Now, I think there's daylight between those two concepts. I don't think they map onto each other perfectly, but quite often they do, so that some of the biggest Roberts Court decisions, say, in effectively striking down the heart of the Voting Rights Act or in amplifying the role of money in politics, are things that Republicans prefer to Democrats. So it's not hard to make the critique, but I think you don't want to be too uh, categorical about it. So how does this distinction between ideology and partisanship actually play out? Where I could see a difference. So the the gerrymandering cases, they have this term. Um, That's where you can sometimes see departures between ideology and partisanship, right? You might have an ideological commitment to having um, one person, one vote, and equal representation. Um, And that's that's on the ideology side. And then on the partisan side, these cases are brought representing particular political parties. So if they're deciding differently based on the political party, that's a way to distinguish. The partisan gerrymandering cases are a great, great example because there's actually no particular reason to think that one party does it more than the other. When the Democrats held more state houses, they gerrymandered the hell out of the country. Now the Republicans are ahead. And so if the court uh, allows partisan gerrymandering, that will in the short term be good for Republicans. And that can be thought to be a kind of partisan decision. But really the court ought to be and probably will be making a decision based on Uh, judicial questions of do the courts have a role in policing partisan gerrymandering done by whatever party. So now the court can be short-termist too and may consider the the current political reality uh, and not the general judicial one. But the court also seems to me to try to give itself a bit of cover because both last year and this year when they took cases from Wisconsin and Maryland and um, 
and North Carolina and Maryland. In each case, there was some Republican gerrymandering going on and some Democratic gerrymandering going on. So I think the court is sensitive to these charges and wants to insulate itself from the partisan accusation by setting up the cases in a way that it will look more judicial. So whether we're talking about ideology or partisanship, um, how would you say the Roberts Court compares to courts in years past? Looking back to the Warren, Berger, and Rehnquist courts, Berger and Rehnquist in particular are thought of as conservative. Is the Roberts Court different in kind or just different in degree in terms of how conservative it is? I, I think the point that Mr. Liptak made is is the right point, which is if you look at the Warren Court, the Berger Court, the Rehnquist Court, and you asked me to predict how each justice was going to vote on the basis of some ideological measure that I had, I could do that. Uh, what I'm trying to say is th those were ideological courts too, full of ideological people. The difference here is the perfect alignment with partisanship. So just go back a little bit when we had uh, John Paul Stevens on the court. Here we have one of the most liberal members of the court is a Republican appointee. We don't have that anymore. We have no Republicans on the left side of the court, and we have no Democrats on the right side of the court. And that's the, the visual difference. But in terms of predicting votes based on ideology, I'm, I'm going to do as well with the Roberts Court, the Berger Court, the Rehnquist Court, is the Warren Court. But I don't think the Roberts Court is especially more conservative. And I don't think it's especially more activist. It is roughly the equivalent of the Rehnquist Court in terms of general ideological patterns. It's, it's a, you know, a, I don't want to say it's not an extreme conservative court. It's a moderate conservative court. Uh, it looks really different than the Warren Court. Now, the Warren Court, seven out of 10 decisions are liberal. Since the uh, 1970s, that came down to about four out of every five, at four, five decisions out of every 10 are liberal. So, but that trend has been going on since 1969, and the, the Roberts Court hasn't departed all that much from it. But when we talk about the Roberts Court, Lee and I are really talking about the court that exists from 2005 to 2018. Yes. When you had, yes. uh, you know, four liberals, four conservatives, and a, a, a moderate conservative, Justice Kennedy, in the middle. Now with Kennedy out and Kavanaugh in, we don't know yet, but there's reason to think we're entering a new Roberts Court era, which could be substantially more conservative than the previous courts. That's a good point. And did you see a drift towards more conservative over that earlier part, or or is was it pretty consistent? And now you think there's a a point that they might pivot after Kavanaugh. There's a little bit up and down. I mean, uh, I think Mr. Liptak one year wrote this is the most liberal court in a decade, and then a year later the most conservative court. So there's been just some bumping up and down, largely reflecting Kennedy. Kennedy sometimes was a little more to the right, a little more to the left, which in turn reflects the docket. What cases are on the docket? Um, I think Mr. Liptak's right. It, it, assuming Chief Justice Roberts isn't really drifting to the left and he's evolving into a liberal, this version of the Rehnquist Court will be more conservative. Uh, Roberts Court will be more conservative than the Rehnquist Court. Have certain members of the court shifted over time? For example, some people have commented that Justice Ginsburg has become more liberal as the court has become more conservative overall. Some judges do drift. Uh, so one great example on the Roberts Court is that Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Samuel Alito are appointed essentially simultaneously and have very similar profiles and start out ideologically in the same space. 
over time, Alito drifts right, Roberts drifts left. So you see that to an extent. Um, and by the end of the last term, uh, Roberts and uh, Kennedy were indistinguishable ideologically. So there, there are trends. I, if if Ginsburg has drifted, I don't think it's been very much, and maybe a little bit to the left. Sotomayor may have drifted a little more substantially to the left. In a, in a lot of ways, though, none of this particularly matters unless you're the justice at the center of the court. So if Roberts, who seems to be at the center of the current court, is drifting left, and not a ton of evidence on this, but in a handful of cases this term, he has joined the four liberals, you know, that would be a very important data point. Can you help us drill down what we're talking about when we say conservative here? Do we really just mean this is a pro-business court? Um, because if that's the case, that's not necessarily true of just uh, Republican-appointed judges. That would also be true of Democratic-appointed uh, judges as well, wouldn't you say? Well, I tend, you know, I tend to use conservative in just the standard everyday sense of conservative. So, um, uh, a justice who rules for the government in criminal cases, a justice who upholds restrictions on abortion, a justice who invalidates restrictions on guns. Just the common person uh, sense of the term. So you mean politically conservative as opposed to judicially conservative? Because I think that you can create a distinction between the two. I do. I mean, I'm thinking about it in the sense that if I went and asked my mother, what, what, a, <laughs> you know, is this conservative or is this liberal? That's how I'm thinking of it. I'm wondering what you're thinking about, though, when you say judicially conservative. Well, I'm thinking of concepts like being judicially restrained, being hesitant to overturn precedent or uh, overturn a statute that the legislature enacted, and that being distinct from the political outcome of a case such as um, outlying abortion uh, based on political reasons. You have a good Ruth Bader Ginsburg story along these lines. Oh, so I, I interviewed uh, Justice Ginsburg in 2013, and she said, and this is a great quote, and it was in the headline, that the Roberts Court is the most activist court in uh, recent history. And she was very upset uh, about the voting rights case, that the court had struck down, you know, a, a federal law or an important part of it for which people had bled and died and was arguably the most successful civil rights legislation uh, uh, in American history. And that is, incidentally, the right way to think about activism. Activism can be measured. If you overturn precedents or strike down statutes or executive actions, you're, you're being activist. And I think you were making this, uh, this point a second ago. Uh, now, that same week, the court also struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, which denied federal benefits to married same-sex couples. She didn't think that was activist at all. <laughs> that was perfectly fine. But that gives you the sense that some of this is a moving target, depending on um, uh, where you want to go. But I don't think you answered the question. You've done a ton of work on this, Lee. What can be said about the Roberts Court as a pro-business court? Uh, well, I've, uh, clearly they're reaching more decisions in favor of business than any of their predecessors going back to the Warren Court. We haven't, I don't think we've gone further back than the Warren Court. So if you look at cases in which there's a business on one side, the business is winning at higher rates. And you made a great point. Uh, some people will talk about the Republicans or the conservatives on the court as being pro-business. It's the court. So the Democratic appointees on the Roberts Court are more pro-business than the Republican appointees were two, three decades ago. Now, what that's about, people have different theories. 
But I think you also identified in particular in a piece you did with uh, Judge Posner and Bill Landis that the most pro-business justices on the court, am I remembering this right, were Alito and Roberts? Yes. Yes. So the 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 more recent justices are quite pro-business, but I really don't want to take away from the point that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Pryor, you would expect them to be way down, you know, with uh, some of the liberals from the Warren Court era. And they rank very high on the pro-business. But this, this is also Chim- consistent, and Judge Posner said this to me at one point, with general thinking among uh, American legal elites, which are basically pro-market and, uh, and suspicious of some forms of litigation. So we've discussed this impression of the Roberts Court as a conservative institution, whether that's partisan or ideological. We want to discuss this notion that the Roberts Court is seeking to protect its own legitimacy. Um, and we, we eventually want to talk about the tools and methods that it's using to protect that legitimacy. But before we get to that, what does legitimacy mean in the context of the Supreme Court? And why are we particularly concerned about legitimacy uh, for the judicial branch? Well, this is a question you've thought about with regard to Chief Justice Roberts in particular. You may want to say a few words. Yeah, so let me answer the general question first and then about Roberts in particular. The reason the court cares about its legitimacy is it's not obvious why we do what the court says we should do. You know, the court rules. It doesn't have an army. It doesn't have any money. It really has no means of enforcing its decisions. And therefore, it needs to maintain this aura that it's making reasoned independent decisions that are worthy of respect. So uh, just even to add on to that a, a, a bit, which is, yes, they need legitimacy so that their decisions are respected and they're efficacious, people follow them and so on. But they also need uh, what we sometimes call in political science reservoirs of legitimacy so that if they do something that's counter-majoritarian, they invalidate legislation, that they can draw on the reservoir of goodwill that they have built up over decades. So it's important both for particular decisions and also in the long run. So Justice Breyer in public often makes this point. It's a surprising point and maybe even a little counterintuitive. He says, isn't it great uh, that after Bush v. Gore, he says, I was in dissent in Bush v. Gore. It was a 5-4 decision. I thought it was gravely wrong. But isn't it great that the country woke up and said, Supreme Court has spoken. I guess it's over. Uh, whereas in much of the rest of the world, there'd be riots, there, there would be civil disobedience, there would be revolution. Uh, and yet, you know, these nine unelected people go into the back room, crank out some decisions, not especially persuasive decisions, and everyone says, okay, Supreme Court has spoken. And Breyer says, that's great, and that's what we want. We want the court to have that kind of respect. He says, even in a case where I thought they, where he thought they'd gotten it gravely wrong. Now, the court has in the past couple of years... <clears throat> Uh, through little fault of its own, gotten badly beaten up because the confirmation process, the the Garland, Gorsuch, and and especially Kavanaugh confirmation process has exposed the court in a minimum to being thought to be a political prize by the Senate. And the American public hears that and thinks the court is political. And Justice Kavanaugh didn't help matters by, uh, at his second set of hearings, saying that he'd been attacked by left-wing organizations and the revenge of the Clintons and cast things in starkly political terms. So Chief Justice Roberts now finds himself in an odd position where he is on the one hand the product of the conservative legal movement, basically conservative, and uh, is going to help move the court in a conservative direction. But at the same time, he wants to portray the court to be independent and apolitical, uh, and he's the steward of the institutional reputation of the court. So he's got 
instincts that tug in different directions. And I think the upshot of that is going to be that Roberts, in some situations, is going to cast perhaps surprising votes and join liberals. And in other situations, while moving the court to the right, doing it in an incremental, stately, and measured fashion, tapping the brakes while the four more conservative justices might be eager to move faster. Are there decisions that you can point to that sort of show this um, sort of dual hat of the chief justice where he's struggling with preserving the legitimacy of the court, maybe going a little bit more um, with the liberal justices than in order to preserve the legitimacy? So here's one example. A couple years ago, uh, the chief justice in dissent uh, voted to sustain a Texas abortion law that would have made it harder for women in Texas to obtain abortions. Uh, the law concerned admitting privileges and uh, and whether clinics needed to be sort of set up as mini hospitals. He thought that law was perfectly fine. Same law, I mean, verbatim the same law is enacted in Louisiana and uh, and is struck down by, by the um, federal appeals court, comes to the Supreme Court on an emergency motion for a stay and although we know what Roberts thinks of this law on the merits, he and the four liberals vote to stay the law at least until it comes back on the merits. That's, you know, a fairly surprising decision. You could explain it in various ways. You could say maybe he thought the Louisiana law may well need to be struck down, but it oughtn't be done by a circuit court. If it's going to be done, that circuit court should obey Supreme Court precedent. It should be done by the Supreme Court. Maybe he thought this was in the nature of what sometimes is called at the court a courtesy fifth vote. That is, the four liberals were plainly ready to grant cert. And if you don't grant the stay in the meantime, and all kinds of clinics close, it's very hard to maintain the status quo. Those clinics may be closed for good. They have rents, they have payrolls, they have leases. So it Many things may be going on, but at the gross level, at the general level, the chief justice is doing the opposite of what you might have expected him to do. And I think part of the reason for that is this impulse toward legitimacy. And do you both think that this impulse for legitimacy, how should we think about it? Is the chief justice trying to protect the court's legitimacy because he thinks in the long term the court will be more effective, possibly being as ungenerous as possible? Uh that he can advance his own ideological agenda if he has a legitimate court behind him? Or do you think that it's some sort of higher commitment to the judicial branch and, and his respect for it? I, I, my, my sense is some, some higher commitment. I mean, he is the symbol of the Supreme Court. We call it the Roberts Court. We're teaching a course called the Roberts Court. It's his era. And you don't want to see the court go down in the tubes while you're, you know, while you're in charge. I mean, there may be an ideological agenda behind it too, but he's a pretty he's a pretty good student of the political history of the court, and I think keeps a keeps an eye on that. Yeah, well, he talks about this. He says, "I'm, I, you know, nobody's going to remember me as John Marshall, but I don't want to be remembered as the guy who wrote Dred Scott either." Mm-hmm. You know, he. he and he's also a young man, what, 64? Right. Yeah. Um, he's going to be there for a long time. Uh, I mean, one interesting thing about Roberts is how long has he been there now? 12? Uh, 2005. 14 years. Yeah. Uh, that's about as long as each of his three predecessors were on the court. So that's that's like an entire uh, Burger Court, Warren Court, Rehnquist Court. He's already done that. And he's likely to be there for 25 more years. So, you know... The, Joan Biskupic has just written an excellent biography of the Chief Justice, but 
in a sense, premature because we're going to have a long, long Roberts court. He's got plenty of time to do things he wants to do. And he also wants the history books to judge him well uh, when, you know, the reputation of the court is in play. I, I really agree with that. And if you listen to his speeches, it's at, it's, it just always moves to the fore. We're not Republican or Democratic judges. Um, any of the problems from the confirmation process, that's on the Senate. That's not on us. Uh, Antonin Scalia was confirmed 98 to zero, and now my colleagues are these close votes. So he's always trying to distinguish the court from the political branches of government. We do business differently here. We're a court. We were curious. It seems like he has a number of strategies for how to do that. You mentioned his his public rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the other tools that he uses to preserve the legitimacy of the court? Is it is it case selection? Is it? A, a, I, I think docket writing? control. Now he does not, of course, have complete control over the docket. It's it, four votes, so it's granted. But docket control is a really effective tool for for making the court look less political. In the 2016 term, it was an eight-person court. Um, they took very few salient cases, really low-profile cases, highest unanimity in decades. So, you know, if they're not taking the abortion cases and the affirmative action cases and they're working on some st- statutory issues, they can look a lot more legalistic. And they've been sitting on, <clears throat> in the current term, uh, the DACA case for many months, an Indiana abortion case for at least a couple months, some cases about whether Title VII covered sexual orientation discrimination and transgender discrimination for many months. And maybe they'll end up taking them, but even having slow walked them into the next term is good for the temperature at the court, and they may not take them at all. Normatively, do you think that it's a good or bad thing that the court is sometimes hesitant to take on some of these consequential cases? Isn't it the role of the court to step up to the plate to answer hard legal questions? You know, there's there's some disputes that have to be resolved by the Supreme Court. They've created circuit splits. Um, uh, people's lives are at stake. You talked about clinics being closed down. Well, at a certain point, they may have to step in. But timing that, isn't such a bad idea. But there are cases. Um, this month, the court's going to hear the question of whether the Trump administration could put a question on citizenship onto the census. Those forms need to be printed in June. And, you know, that, That's can, a great that, that can't be decided by a district court judge. That has to be decided by the Supreme That's court. a great example. That's a case. They There's no choice. They've got to step into that. But in many other areas, they can they can wait. So this larger question of normatively, should they be deciding more cases? Which cases are they picking? That's a very large and complicated question. We we have given the Supreme Court discretion over its own docket. And that is a very empowering thing. And, you know, I don't know that you can argue as a matter of general principle, should they be deciding more or less? It, It often depends on where you stand on the merits of a particular case, whether you want them to take the case or not. I mean, liberal groups basically want to keep cases out of the Supreme Court because they're afraid of the decisions. Well, you can think about um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg with the same-sex marriage cases. Uh, I think uh, Mr. Liptak and I agree. She wanted to slow that down. Um, She wanted the country to kind of find its way on same-sex marriage before the court jumped into that. So I think certain justices, uh, they have different views on it when the court should step in. She made hers pretty clear. 
Going back to one thing you said, uh, the Breyer quote regarding Bush v. Gore and how great it is that we respect the court when they make these decisions. Is it possible that maybe the court is too comfortable in its own legitimacy and that enables it to take on these hugely controversial, hugely uh, political questions that really affect every one of our lives? In that case, the Supreme Court effectively chose the president. I hope I'm not mischaracterizing it, but uh, – Maybe the court is too legitimate. Maybe they should be a little less comfortable in their own legitimacy. What do you think about that? I th- I think that that could change very quickly. Uh, you know, I imagine a term on the Supreme Court where they um, invalidate all kinds of laws, of very uh, popular laws, and all of a sudden they'd be under attack. And and the court can can respond to that. I don't. I mean, it's really a question of political theory. If if you start, if you if you didn't know a thing about American history, and you're setting up a political system, you know, it's going to be a democracy, right? And we're going to let the people have elected representatives to decide what the laws ought to be, and we're going to let the people decide to have a chief executive who is going to enforce those laws. And by the way, we're going to have nine unelected people make all the big decisions. Really, I mean, it's not obvious that that's the right way to run a system. As it happens, it works fairly well. And as it happens today, say what you will about the Supreme Court. Uh, it, it it is composed of able people who operate uh, by reason and not as the other branches do. Well, but know. on the other hand, you know, democracy can't be two wolves um, and a sheep deciding what to have for lunch, as the famous saying goes, mm-hmm. right? So it can't be a system that's driven completely by majoritarian preferences. That's the two wolves and the sheep. The sheep's always going to lose, right? So uh, the sheep's always going to be dinner. Uh, so the 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 court can be a break on you know the worst majoritarian uh, tyranny. Right, but you can also distinguish two or three kinds of cases. So yeah, the the court obviously has a powerful counter-majoritarian role to play in bill of rights cases. Uh, less clear that the court necessarily should be deciding every structural dispute between the political branches, which they could tussle out for themselves in different ways. And also maybe less clear that the court in interpreting statutes shouldn't just kick it back to Congress. You know, we we can't make sense of this. Tell us what you really mean. But these these are issues on which reasonable people can disagree. How much intervention should there be? My, my own, my own view, I, I don't tend to think normatively. I tend to think empirically and what do I know? And I know that a court that is extremely aggressive and counter-majoritarian in case after case, term after term, is in trouble, is a court that will be attacked. And not just in the United States, but we've seen this all over the world. So courts have to be careful. See, I neither think normatively nor empirically. I think <laughs> anecdotally. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Epstein, you spoke about a reservoir of legitimacy. With Brown v. Board, we saw that the court made this amazing kind of majoritarian decision and then retreated for about a decade. Are there areas of the law that we've seen something similar with the Roberts Court? You know, American society is so divided on so many questions now that it really creates an opening for the court um, to... I don't want to say do what it wants, but yeah, do what it wants without – there's 50% of the people are going to like it. 50% of the people aren't going to like it. Well, on what issue today in the United States is it 90-10? Can you think of any? 
I mean, Brown is a great example because Brown is, you know, the landmark decision, probably the most important decision they make. And yet, for the longest time, it has very little practical effect. They they don't do a ton to enforce it. And follow-on cases like uh, bans on uh, interracial marriage don't get decided for another 15 years. So the court will sometimes announce a principle and then, as you say, kind of retreat from it. I think the Second Amendment cases, uh, uh, starting with Heller in 2008, are an example of this. They announce this principle and then they recede from the scene. But uh, as, you know, eventually in Brown and and, uh, and bans on interracial marriage and now in the Second Amendment case, they let people digest the symbolic thing and then they get back into business. And I think the Second Amendment's coming back to the court now. I think I think actually Brown and the Second Amendment are very different cases. So we, you've given the story of Brown. I think the Second Amendment is a really different story, and that's about uh, that's an, a personnel story. It's about Kennedy. It's about neither side of the court not being quite sure of what Kennedy would do in these gun cases, and that's why they stayed away from them. Uh, it, that's and that's why we're seeing the return of the Second Amendment. Kennedy's gone. There's maybe depending upon Roberts, there may be a clear, you know, five-person majority to start invalidating restrictions on guns. So to me, that's less of a legitimacy story. And and something to say about Brown as opposed to Heller uh, is the court sends a different kind of message if it does something unanimously. And most of the major Roberts court's decisions were 5-4. Even Roe was 7-2. Um, so one, one reason the court has some legitimacy problems today is because it's the rare major case in which they're unanimous. In fact, what, what, what can you even think of? Some, some, some Fourth Amendment cases, a couple of Fourth Amendment cases. But aside from that, the court in a big, big case is very seldom unanimous. And I can think the other way, which is I think there are some courts in, in recent history that have worked, would have worked really hard on the healthcare decision, on a few other decisions to try to reach a more consensual uh, uh, ruling. But this court, you're right, there are very few really big cases that were decided unanimously. So is there a distinction between the short and long-term legitimacy of the court? Uh, take Brown, for example. In the short term, the court was accused of being activist and overturning the will of the legislatures. But um, in the long term, that case is often cited as one of the greatest moments for the court when it really righted an injustice. So do you think the Roberts court is concerned primarily with short or long-term legitimacy? I, we, you know, in the in political scientists tend to differentiate between what they call diffuse legitimacy uh, or support and specific support. So how does the public feel about a particular case versus how does the public feel about the court? Right. Um, and I, I'm not sure that we have enough information to answer the kind of question, you know, except anecdotally or maybe with historical evidence. I mean, I, I think it's at least possible that there are some kinds of areas, uh, equal rights for racial minorities, equal rights for women, equal rights for gay and lesbians, where it really is a kind of progress and one-way ratchet. And over time, the court's decisions, which might have seemed controversial at the time, will come to seem obvious. There are other areas, the death penalty, abortion, where people will forever be divided. And there's not this kind of sense of a natural societal progress. 
You mentioned abortion as an always controversial issue, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg seems to think that if the court had taken a more incremental approach, that it could have been one of these one-way ratchet cases. What do you think about that? She she certainly takes that view. She thinks that if the court had acted in a much more limited way, she thought the result in Roe was correct, that the Texas law, which was very extreme, ought to have been struck down, but that the court should not have announced a general uh, constitutional right to abortion because she said there was movement in the state legislatures and this could have been achieved democratically. That is a highly contested assertion. And specialists like Reva Siegel and Linda Greenhouse at Yale think that she's quite wrong in her analysis. But but that is her analysis, that the court should not get too far ahead of the American people, that that will give rise to backlash. Uh, and I think the court is alert to that kind of thing. And as Professor Epstein was saying before, I think, um, We're getting mixed up whether we said yeah. it in class or not. Um, the, the road to same-sex marriage was a very cautious one. And the court had the opportunity in 2013 in the Prop 8 case out of California to say, yes, there's a right to same-sex marriage. But I think it thought that the country wasn't ready for it and needed some more time for it to become more widespread. And only when same-sex marriage existed in most states did the court say the Constitution requires a right to same-sex marriage. I think uh, uh, agreed, Gin Justice Ginsburg has made this point about abortion. The best piece of evidence against it, to be honest, is to look at public opinion polls. There has been very little movement on abortion. Uh, people are pretty dug in, and they just conceptualize abortion in such different terms that whether time would have healed that, whether a more incremental approach would have healed that, I... I I have, I, have, I have some doubts. But, the, but here's a counterpoint. Yeah. It doesn't go directly to what you were saying. But Roe was much less controversial when announced than you might have thought. Uh, you know, partly the vote count tells you the story, and the number of Nixon appointees uh, were in the majority. Uh, but people didn't go crazy about it right away. Uh, Justice Stevens had his confirmation hearings in 75, so two years later he didn't get a single question on abortion. But it was an impetus for people to have something to be mad about because it was a general statement about a right to abortion. And over time, uh, the anti-abortion crowd really took aim at Roe. Uh, so the court did, and I think Ginsburg makes this point, set up a big fat target, which maybe it didn't have to. So does the court have a way of determining what the hot button issues are beforehand? Well, we were talking about this in class, actually, whether they know what the hot button petitions are and the hot button cases are. And you say, absolutely, yes. They're smart people. They read the papers. They, you know, and, you, and there's so much commentary around the court that it's it's not as though they get the cert petition and they don't know anything else. I mean, not not only journalists, but bloggers and law professors and advocacy groups and it's pretty hard not to notice which cases are the ones that really engage people. And you have to realize, too, I mean, we're talking about issues that are such a small fraction of what the court does. Um, and they have other cases that could have really big impact nobody pays much attention to. We've been talking this term. There's some, you know, administrative law cases that are big deal cases if you know, you know, if you're thinking about what agencies do, um, that could have really big implications. But as Mr. Liptak has said, how does he write about these? Yeah, it's how crystal does he... clear to me that it's a big case, but good luck convincing my editors and my readers. 
This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UshaiLRev. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Thank you to our guests for joining us, and tune in next time for How to Save a Constitutional Democracy.